Well, let's get started. You can keep your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 30. We'll be referring to, uh, to that scripture. I want to ask you guys a question. How many of you know what a truss is? Trust, not trust, but trust, T-R-U-S-S. I want to show you a picture of one. This is a truss. Um, most of you have a lot of these in your attic, and you've probably seen them as you're driving around seeing new construction going up all over central Florida. They support your roof. That's what you put the plywood on and put the tar paper on, and then you slap shingles on top of that. These are manufactured in truss plants. They're made by men in assembly lines and by machines. Um, and they save a lot of time and a lot of money because people used to build roofs by just one rafter at a time. And it took a lot of time, it took a lot of money, and took a lot of effort. Um, I was a carpenter once upon a time, and I've set hundreds, maybe even thousands of trusses just like that. Um, they, they make your roof flat, and they're designed to hold up a lot of weight, more so than just putting stick rafters and bracing them with a two-before here and there. Those are designed, especially in Florida, you see them used a lot here because of the hurricane threat. You see them used up north because of the snow load from the cold weather, and they been, have been a, just a nice modern invention. And so uh, when all the, the, whole, the walls of your house are built and braced up, the perimeter walls, then your contractor would hire a crane, especially if the trusses are really big. You would hire a crane. They would come in, they would set up, and this big crane would pick these things up, set them on top of the roof, and there would be men up there, and they would nail them off, brace them, set them, and they would slap plywood up on top of it. And then you're done. Voila, you have a roof. Well, one day, about 20 years ago, I was helping set trusses on a mansion. I mean, this mansion, one of the tallest houses I've ever been on. It was a three-story house in hammock dunes and Palm Coast right off the beach. It was gorgeous. And I was up in the air about 30 feet high, and we had just gotten started that morning. Um, and I was the person, because I was about 20-something years old, and I was agile, and I weighed a lot less than I do now. I was able to get around pretty easy. And so I was the guy that would climb around on top of the truss. I would brace it, nail it off, unhook the crane, wave to the crane operator that it's time to go pick up another one, and then I would step on that truss and wait for the next one. And things were going great. It was a beautiful morning. You could see the ocean. I think it was around this time of the year. It was in the mid-80s. You could smell the salt air coming off the, the ocean. And I was just happy to be alive and to be working outside. I was blessed. Things were going great. And we had just braced about our fifth truss that morning. Um, and I didn't like, at, at 20 years ago, it wasn't required, but it was recommended you wear a safety harness. And those things were cumbersome. They made me clumsy. I, I got tangled up. I hated them. I never wore them. And nobody I knew that did construction wore those. When you're up there, to me, they were more dangerous uh, than what I was doing, walking around with a hammer, you know, just being careful. So I did not have a harness on that day. And I was free to move about with any constraints on my body. Um, so I unhooked the crane rope from that fifth truss, and I waved to the crane operator to pick up another one. And then I stepped on the truss that I had just put in place, and the next thing I know, I am lying on the concrete in a puddle of my own blood. I can't catch my breath, and these roughneck men that I worked with on that crew were standing above me, looking down with wide eyes and open mouths. Some of them were cursing because it frightened them so bad. Um, and they're telling me, man, you're, you're messed up pretty bad. One of them told me, lie still, I'm going to call 911. He said, I think you probably broke your back, um, and I could feel the wetness under me, and I could see that it was red, and I thought, 
you know what? The last thing I remember was looking down and seeing a whole bunch of plumbing sticking up and seeing rebar sticking up, and I thought I couldn't see really good. My vision was blurry. I thought, I'm a human popsicle. I probably got pierced by one of those things, and I can't move because I couldn't move. And then I couldn't see, so I thought, and my head hit the concrete. That's my brain's leak, and then, you know, all the things you think when you get hurt. I thought maybe I've had a concussion. I was scared. I was embarrassed. I don't like getting hurt. I don't like being everyone standing over me looking, but mostly I was afraid. I was really scared. Um, and then, you know, you all want to know what happened. I'm obviously here. I'm alive. I didn't have to get put in a wheelchair to come up here. By the mercy and the grace of God, I landed. I fell 30 feet. 30 feet. And I landed in such a way I didn't break any bones. I couldn't walk for about a month. And I had to get laid up. You know, I had to go to the hospital. They scanned me. They did all kinds of scans because they could not believe that there was no major organs that were busted or leaking or pierced. But, and I was a Christian then, but I was, you know, I was, a, I was pretty dumb and naive and didn't wear the safety harness, and God spared my life. Yeah, God is good. Amen. Um, but here's what happened. Number one, I should have wore a safety harness, right? That's dumb. Don't do that, okay? Secondly, here's the other thing that happened. That truss that I stepped on that was designed to hold up probably tens of thousands of pounds, just one truss alone, when you put them all together, hundreds of thousands of pounds, that truss had a flaw in it because it was made by men in a factory. It was probably made on a Friday about quitting time, okay? And those trusses have metal cleats that clamp them together. And that cleat was off on one side, and it was off on the other side. It was number three yellow pine. It had knots in it. It was just every, everything that created the perfect storm for that accident happened. And so that truss that was designed to hold up thousands of pounds collapsed under the weight of a 180-pound, 23-year-old kid. And I hit the ground. Um, and that's what happened. It was a, I would say this. That truss was a false security. I trusted in it. I put all of my weight on top of that thing and it collapsed and it busted into about 12 pieces and not only did I fall and hit the concrete, that truss fell on top of me. Thank you very much. Um, and I'll tell you the rest of that story someday. That truss company called me the very next day and man, they wanted to whine me and dine me and, and they knew that they were at fault, but I didn't, I didn't sue them. God worked all of it out. They paid my hospital bills and no, I didn't get a big lawsuit or we'd be in a building right now, right? <laughs> So, so none of that happened, but God took care of me, and I can walk, and I'm, and I'm fine. Praise God, 20 years later. So why don't I tell you that story? Because today I want to talk to you about false security, the things that we trust in to hold up the weight of our life that just can't deliver. And, and they're costly, and they're empty, and sometimes they're deadly. In fact, that same trust company, the very next year, a similar accident happened, and the guy didn't live. He died. They went out of business. That, that person, his family did slap a lawsuit on them, so it could have been deadly for me, but God was merciful. God was gracious to me. Uh, and I want to talk to you about false security today, and I want to talk to you about it from this passage we looked at, because there's so many um, interesting things that happened, even though it was, you know, thousands of years ago, probably a thousand years before Christ came, Isaiah wrote this prophecy, and he was prophesying to the southern kingdom, um, and what was happening was, let me give you just a little bit of historic context. I want to pull a map up here. I want to show you something. And I don't want this to be a boring uh, lecture on geography or Middle Eastern culture, okay? Can you guys see this map? I put three big red dots there. If you're colorblind, I'm sorry. That's the brightest color I had. Assyria is up there to the north. Can you guys see that? This was in ancient days, in the Old Testament times. Assyria was this massive empire that was dominating everybody. 
Down south to the left is Egypt, another massive empire and dynasty that was dominating everybody. And in the middle, little bitty Judah and Jerusalem right there. You can just barely see it. It's just a blip on the map. And here is what was happening, okay? Back then, Israel was divided. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, and there was the southern kingdom that they called Judah. And Judah was the, in the south, so it was the most important, amen? No, Judah was in the south, and the capital city, Jerusalem, God's holy city, was there. So that was the city they protected the most. So what had happened was Assyria was on this rampage, kind of like um, Alexander the Great. They wanted to conquer everybody in every, every place and dominate. So they were sweeping down uh, from north to south. They had dominated the northern kingdom of Israel and they were headed for Jerusalem. They had promised, they had threatened, they're going to raise that city to the ground and plunder the temple and destroy everything. And so Judah was afraid. Judah was scared. They saw what happened to the northern kingdom. They saw that this machine, this war machine, Assyria was like a slow-moving, grinding tsunami, tsunami that destroyed everything in its path. And they were afraid. And you're saying, why was all this happening anyway? Didn't Israel belong to God? Yes, they did. They did because they belonged to God and God cared so much about them. He told them, if you ever violate the covenant that we have together, I'm going to chasten you. That word chasten, it means to discipline. It means to spank. You, you discipline your children, okay? You may not use the method of spanking, but you discipline your children if you love them, the Bible says. Whatever that means to you as a parent, we all have different ways. And God's the perfect parent, and He chastens and disciplines His children when we disobey and we violate our covenant. And so what had happened was the northern kingdom was just riddled with sin, idolatry, greed, injustice, tyranny. They disobeyed God's commandments and he warned them and warned them and warned them and was patient and waited. And they didn't turn, they didn't repent, and so God sent Assyria to invade them. So the northern kingdom is toast, okay? And now it's the southern kingdom's time. And God had been promising them the same thing. You better relent. I'm your loving father. I want you to turn. And they wouldn't do it. So God is sending Assyria. And he tells Judah, don't worry about Assyria. If you just return to me, if you just repent, I'll take care of the threat. Don't worry about it. But what did Judah do? Well, I want to submit to you that what Judah did is so often what we do as God's children. They turned to something other than God for their security. They were about to step on this flawed truss and they were going to fall down to the ground and maybe break their neck and fatal, you know, fatally and never get up again. What they did is they ran to Egypt. Now think about this. If you know the Old Testament at all, you know what Egypt represented to them. Slavery, right? God had delivered them from, from Egypt, and he had plundered the Egyptians. They, they brought gold and treasure and jewels from Egypt, and they had been sent to the promised land. And they're about to go back, something God told them never to do. They're about to go back all the way to Egypt and trust in the person, the people, Pharaoh, who enslaved them uh, so many years before. And God said, don't do it. It's a false security. It's a false promise. It's empty. It's costly. It's deadly. But that's what they did. They're just like us sometimes. They ran to Egypt. They made an alliance with Egypt. And it ended up costing them dearly. And we do the same thing. It's interesting how something like this could happen so many years ago. We read this when we're reading our Bible. And we're like, well, this has nothing to do with me. But it has everything to do with you. It has everything to do with me. We are all just like, we're all just like Judah in some ways. And listen, if you had been there and you would have considered all the things that they knew, maybe it would have made sense. Sometimes we trust in things. It looks right. It seems reasonable. It seems logical. It makes sense to us, right? But the only thing is, it's not, it's not God's plan. 
And since it's not God's plan, it's not going to succeed. It's going to fail, right? We run to things like Egypt too. I mean, think about it. Assyria grounded everything to the ground that was in their path. They had cruel and unusual barbaric war tactics. Do you guys know about Assyria? The capital was Nineveh. You know what they would do to their captives? They would cut off their ears. They would cut off their nose. I'm sorry, I know that this is kind of graphic. They would do what's called flaying. They would skin people alive. You say, why did they do that? Well, because they were cruel and satanic, yes. But that was also uh, a technique, and it was called intimidation. Why, you, why lose hundreds of thousands of soldiers fighting a battle when you can just scare, scare your opponent into surrendering, right? So Assyria scared everybody to death. People didn't even have to fight most of the time. They would show up and say, we submit, just please don't hurt us. And then they would end up killing them anyway. So it was a lose-lose, right? And God, but God said, don't worry about Assyria, trust me. But they didn't trust God. They did what felt right to them. They did what seemed to make sense to them. See, that's what sin does. It makes us stupid sometimes, doesn't it? Have you ever done that? Have you ever trusted in something that made sense to you at the time? You thought it was a reasonable path to security, and you ended up being what you heard Craig read earlier. They were ashamed. They were alone. They were destroyed. They were embarrassed. They ended up like a person, the last soldier, waving a flag on a hill and getting overwhelmed. They said, when Assyria comes, we'll run to Egypt. We'll take horses. And God said, your enemies will be faster than you, and they'll overtake you. Trust me instead. That's what God told them. But they're a lot like us. They were unwilling. They refused. They wouldn't do it. Because of what Jerry Bridges said. Listen to this. Jerry Bridges said, it often seems more difficult to trust God. Can we put this slide up? He said this. He said, it often seems more difficult to trust God than to obey Him. The moral will of God given to us in the Bible is rational and reasonable. The circumstances in which we must trust God often appear irrational, and inexplicable. Do you you know what Jerry Bridges is saying? It's a lot easier sometimes to outwardly, externally obey God than it is to internally trust Him because we just can't fathom a way out. See, what God calls us to do is exercise faith. He says, you're going to have to trust me. We say that to our kids all the time, don't we? When they refuse, they argue. They're trying to sinfully reason and get around. And we say, look, discussion's over, you're just going to have to trust me. But so often, we're just like our kids. And that's what verse 1 says here, right? Ah, stubborn children, those of you who are saying, let us go down to Egypt. See, Egypt was powerful, but Egypt was dirty. (laughs) And they were corrupt, and they were tyrants, and nothing had changed even since the three or 400 years since God had delivered Egypt. And there was a massive exodus. They changed Pharaohs, they changed appearances, but it's still an enslaving empire. And God said, I don't ever want you to go back there and trust them for something I've already offered to you. And that was the rub. God said, what are you seeking security in Egypt for? I've given you everything you could possibly need. You think they're powerful? I made them. (laughs) Look at Pharaoh, look at his chariots. And God said, that was me. I made all that. (laughs) You might want to trust me instead. I'm, I'm, I'm not dirty. Uh, I'm not unreliable. He's telling them, you're making a covenant. In fact, this entire section really goes back further than chapter 30. I know that was a lot of scripture we read, and we love scripture, but I didn't want to overwhelm you. I could have read chapters 28, 29, 30, and kept on going. Back in chapter 28, you know what God tells his people? He says, you're making a covenant with death. Now, I love the, the graphic imagery of the Old Testament. He says, you're going to go and you're going to make an alliance with Egypt? And you're going to believe them? 
They told you that they would come and rescue you. That's what Egypt said. They said, look, you come and pay us tribute. Bring us all, empty your royal treasury, which is what they did. They loaded up the camels and the horses, and they tracked all the way down south to Egypt through a dangerous desert to pay all this money and tribute, bribe money, if you will, to pay off Egypt so they would come and be their bodyguard. And Egypt said, sure, we'll be there when the Assyrians invade. We'll be right up there to rescue you. Um, and what happened? They didn't keep their word. And you know what God is telling them? He says, haven't you learned that you can't trust an Egyptian king to keep his word? Do you guys remember what happened during the Exodus? How many times did Pharaoh say, okay, okay, I'll, I'll let your people go, God. And then the very next day, he changed his mind, right? Kings are like us. They're irrational and they're erratic and unpredictable. And they don't keep their word. So God is saying, you're trusting in somebody that's going to absolutely embarrass you and make you ashamed and leave you exposed. And we do the same thing. And look, I'm not under any illusion. I'm not under any illusion that, that anyone here would refute what I've just said to you. I'm learning this more and more as pastors. We can hear a story like this and say, Amen, in our best Baptist voice and say, That's right. But what you need is help seeing how this operates in your own life, right? Well, I want to help you do that. Here's our outline today. It was a long introduction, sermon to be shorter, I promise. <laughs> Here's our outline. Uh, false security. It's all about false security. One, we all seek it. We all seek false security. Two, it always cost us. Or cost us us, if you're from Arkansas. And three, Jesus is better. Jesus is the true security that never leaves us empty, never leaves us exposed, and never leaves us in danger. So first one here, we all seek false security. We all forget the gospel promise that says if God is for you, then What? Who can be against you? We forget that. That's a promise, by the way, to all of us. If you are in Christ, Romans 8 says, you are secure. There's nothing else that you could possibly do to make yourself more secure than you are now. That's a promise that at times in our life, all of us forsake. All of us. We all make that covenant with death. We all make that agreement with the grave uh, that this passage and the one back in 28 talks about. We all seek false securities. All of us do. And it's interesting, if you look... Let me show you some of the images that are used in this section here to show us what these false securities are like. First of all, um, one of the verses here says that you're seeking false alliances and, and false treaties. It's like a bulging wall. You know, it's high, it seems to be solid, but you're putting all of this weight on it. It wasn't designed to carry like that truss I stepped on. And God tells him through the prophet Isaiah, it's bulging and it's going to collapse and shatter into a million pieces. Here's another image. It's a short bed. It's interesting how we, we all think this way. God knows how we think. He says, you're looking for something that's warm, that's going to cover you, that's going to secure you. And he said, but your treatise, your alliance with Egypt is going to be like a short bed. Your feet are going to stick out. It's narrow. It's confined. How many people? Uriah, where are you at? <laughs> how many people have ever... He's, he's about seven foot tall. I don't know how tall you are. You're tall. How many of you have ever tried to sleep on a narrow, short bed? with a cover, with a blanket that's too short. And you can't get comfortable, you can't feel secure, you can't sleep, you can't rest. Yeah, God says that's what we do when we place our confidence in something that's false. And the last one is this. He calls it like a security blanket. It's interesting, he does that in this chapter. He says you're trusting in something. He called it a covering. The word covering in the Hebrew, it can mean weaving a garment. You are weaving a garment for yourself in Egypt that you think is going to be warm, is going to keep you safe. And what God is trying to do is what Lucy's friends, or what Linus's 
uh, Sister Lucy and his best friend Charlie Brown try, try to do is yank that security blanket away. It's a myth. It's a mirage. He uses all of those things to tell them that we all seek false security, and that's exactly what it is. It's false. It's false. Egypt can't offer the people of Judah anything that... Um, they can't offer them nothing that they don't already have in God. And so, let me get to the good part. So what are the things that we are trusting in? What are the false securities that we are looking at? Well, let me help you. They are the things that um, we think will make us feel better, things that will make us happy, things that will take away our bitterness, our anger. Sometimes that's fame and approval, what those things do to you. Sometimes that's power and control. Sometimes it's just comfort and security. And, you know, I have a guy that I love to read. His name is J.D. Greer, and he wrote a book called Gospel. It's one of the best books outside of the Bible I've ever read. It was a game changer, saved my life in a lot of ways because I had forgotten the power of the gospel, and God helped me through that book to rediscover it for myself. And he has in that book one of the last chapters. Man, this is, this is so good. He has something that he calls an idol detector test. And it's seven or eight questions that he asks. I just want to read these to you and focus on the last one. Now remember, I'm trying to help you as a pastor and leader today. I want you to see those areas in your life that you are trusting in false securities that are going to collapse underneath you and leave you empty. They're going to be deadly. They're going to embarrass you. They're going to forsake you, and they're going to take you further away from God. So here's how you know what they are for you. I don't know what they are. The Holy Spirit knows, and you know if you ask these questions. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, what is the one thing you worry the most about losing? You don't have to say it out loud. In fact, don't, okay? <laughs> but let me, let me give you some little hints here. What is it? Your family? Which is a good thing, right? But idols are not... They're good things that have become ultimate things and have taken the place of God. First commandment is what? Thou shalt have no other good things above me. No other gods before me. So what is it that you're most worried about losing? Your family? Your job? The respect of your spouse? Your reputation? Your retirement, your pension, your 401k, your life insurance, what is it? There's some false security lurking underneath there, and we got to dig to find it sometimes. Is it your comfort? Is it your social security? I worry about that as a 43-year-old. Is it going to be there one day? That's another sermon, right? <clears throat> is it your sanity? With all the things we hear about early onset Alzheimer's and dementia, some people are just paralyzed with the fear that their mind is going to go one day. What is it you're most afraid of losing? What scares you? Is it your beauty? Is it your body? Huh? Perfectly fit? Yeah. <laughs> Here's another question. If you could change one thing about yourself right now, what would it be? Oh, we're getting to the good stuff. I can tell. I can tell. I'm getting in your kitchen, aren't I? What's the one thing about yourself right now that you would change if you could? And look, I'm not saying it's a good thing. Uh, excuse me. I'm not saying that losing 20 pounds, that'd be mine, is not a good thing. It is. Uh, but underneath that question that you're answering probably is lurking an idol, a false security, something you're trusting uh, far too much in, right, to give you success and self-worth and value. What is it? Your looks, your marital status, your job, your zip code, your kids, <laughs> Here's the third question. What thing have you sacrificed the most for? What thing in your life have you sacrificed the most for? Because sacrifice and worship usually go hand in hand, don't they? We sacrifice to these gods. What is it? Your income, your scholarship, your job? 
Who in your life do you feel like you can't forgive and why? Ooh, that's a good one. Because when there's bitterness lurking down there, there's a false security that you've trusted in and that person that took, that took something from you, you're unwilling to forgive them. What did they take from you? Was it a drunk driver that hit somebody you loved dearly and maybe killed them or maimed them? Was it somebody that embarrassed you? Somebody that robbed from you? What is it? An ex? Somebody that betrayed you or deceived you? Here's another one. When do you feel the most significant? What causes you to hold your head up the highest? Let me ask it another way. What do you most want people to know about you? Come on, folks. I'm getting, I'm getting in there, aren't I? What is it that you most want people to know about you? What is it? I'm so-and-so, and this is my wife. <laughs> That'd be mine, I guess, because I'm nothing. You know, It's like, this is my wife. I'm actually somebody because of her. Is it your income? Is it your kids? Is it the degree on your wall? Is it your house? It's like, hey, come over and check out my pad. What is it? What is it about you that you secretly hope people will find out really sooner rather than later? Because usually there's a false security lying underneath that. Here's another one. What triggers sadness in you? And maybe depression, not the kind that's organic, but just this spiritual depression. What is it that triggers that? Is it when your kids never call on Mother's Day, Father's Day, birthday, when they never call at all, when they never come home, or when your parents never call, yet your marriage doesn't seem to measure up to what you expected, that you never got married, that your salary is not what you'd hoped, that you're not recognized. And here's the final one, guys, okay? I'm just trying to show you that all of us, in some form or measure, are seeking out false securities and we're rejecting the ongoing promises of the gospel. Here's the big one right here. Where do you turn for comfort when things are not going well? Now, that's the jackpot question. That's it. Thank you. Man, they're good up there. I put that way down the list. See that? Where do you turn for comfort when things are not going well? Now, you'll have to go back in a minute, too, because I jumped ahead. What is it that you're... What's your Egypt? What is it? Where are you going? What alliances are... What, what covenant of death and agreement with the grave are you making? For the things that you think will make you happy or take that bitterness away. What is it? Is it alcohol? Is it some form of narcotic? You know, I, I actually have a, a real compassion for people. I can't even believe I'm telling you this. I, I have an actual compassion for people that get hooked on painkillers. Because you know what? When I fell and hit concrete, I had never taken that, that kind of drug in all my life. But I couldn't walk for a month. It's the most excruciating pain I've ever felt in my life. The doctor said, I cannot believe your femur didn't break because you landed on it. He said, but this is one of the worst contusions I've ever seen in my life. And you're not going to be able to walk and you're going to hurt. And I took um, uh, hydrocodone. And I'm telling you what, man, I took a lot of those. And they kept giving them to me, and I didn't want to give them up. Now, I wasn't buying them down on the street corner or anything like that, but I can really see those things are habit-forming, and there's people whose lives have been absolutely wrecked. And it's not the doctor's fault. I mean, in all cases, it's not. Anyway, I'm getting off subject. Uh, what is it that you're trusting in? A narcotic? A drug? Alcohol? Some other substance? You know, the person that comes home... And he's had a hard day at work and he kicks the dog and yells at the kids. That's making an alliance with Egypt, guys. That's what that, you're, you're, you're trying to take control of the one thing in your life that you can. You lost control at work, but dadgummit, you can still yell and take control in your house. I've been like that too. I've been like that too. Is it pornography? Do you wonder why so many people are addicted to pornography in America today and in the whole world? Well, it's a form of comfort. 
Just like food. People eat comfort. I mean, what's the thing you turn to for comfort when your day and your life is getting wrecked? Because that's the Egypt that the, the scriptures are pointing us to right here. It is. J.D. Greer says this. Is it, is it binging on Netflix? I mean, I got a whole list of things here. Mind-numbing TV. There's all kinds of, of ways that we're seeking false securities. J.D. Greer says, Our ability to be joyful in all things is the measure of how much we believe the gospel. Some, sometimes we know that Christ has taken all of our sin, but His approval just doesn't carry that much weight in our lives. Other things matter more to us. And I've got that list if you want it. Just let me know and I'll get it to you. That's been really helpful and instructive for me. So that's the first point. We all seek false securities, don't we? Point number two. Point number two. False security always cost us. That's what it says in verses 1, 3, 14, 16, 17. He says, you're going to end up... And you know what? Let me just look at those with you because I want you to know I'm not making this up. Look with me at this passage. He says in verse 3, Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame. You're going to be ashamed, he says. If you're trusting in anything for your security and your comfort outside of me, you're going to be left ashamed, and you're going to be left in the shelter of the shadow of Egypt to your humiliations. To your humiliation. And then look at verse... Um, look at verse 6. Let's look at this for a minute. Because he's saying this cost you. Look what they did. An oracle on the beast of the Negev. You know, what's that talking about? He's talking about the camels, the donkeys, all these beasts of burden that they, they emptied all the royal treasuries of Judah and put them on the backs of, of camels and donkeys and tracked them all the way down through the wilderness and they paid off Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And you know what happened? I'm going to give you the spoiler. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Do you know what happened when Assyria invaded Judah? Do you know what Egypt ended up doing? Somebody guess. Just throw it out there. Guess what they did? Nothing. They didn't do a cotton-picking thing. Not a thing. They sat there, and they watched the Assyrian army camp out all around the city of Jerusalem, and they said, finally, Judah's going to be bumped off the map, and we'll never have to worry about them again. Isn't that interesting? All that money they paid, all the trouble they went to. It's funny. All these promises are being made. Assyria says, I'm going to invade you and destroy you. But they couldn't. Another spoiler alert. They couldn't because God didn't let them. Egypt said, we're going to deliver you. But they wouldn't because they weren't willing to do it. False promise, false promise. And in the middle is God's security and God's faithfulness and God's love and God's mercy and God's compassion. It's the same today as it was then. Same today. False security always cost us. It's funny because Egypt is called Rahab in the Old Testament, and it means a fleeting serpent, this active dragon that's moving around, consuming everything in its path. And God, through Isaiah, he says, do you know what? He said, you're going to be ashamed if you trust in Egypt because they're going to be the do-good, they're going to be the do-nothing dragon. They're going to sit still just like a paper dragon and, and embarrass you and humiliate you. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. They were just noisy. They made empty promises. And that's why God said... If you return to me in verse 15, look at this. He says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved, and quietness and in trust shall be your strength. What's he talking about? He's talking about repentance. He's talking about repentance. The reason Assyria was invading Judah was the same reason Assyria invaded the north. They were riddled with sin. They weren't trusting God. 
there was all kinds of, of, of strife and tyranny and oppression in Judah. And God said, I'm calling to you repent. If you'll come back to me, own up to your sin, confess it, agree with me that you violated my covenant and I'll cover you with mercy. And I won't be a security blanket. I'll be an actual protection for you. I will be faithful to you. But they wouldn't do it initially. They wouldn't do it. And that's why it's, that's why it's always costly and deadly and empty. Well, listen, here's what I want to do really quick. I want to give you just a couple of examples. Uh, what are some ways that we still do this? I, g- I gave you some diagnostic questions, and I want to give you some examples, okay? Just a few ways. Number one is retaliate. That's one of the ways that we run to Egypt. As a Christian, when somebody does something that offends us, that hurts us, that humiliates us, somebody actually wrongs us, they, they really are sinning against us. And what does the Bible say? When that happens, when we want revenge, what's the Bible say? Do not repay evil for evil, says the Lord, because vengeance is mine. Do you know where that's at? That's in Romans, the 12th chapter. Do you know what the first 11 chapters of Romans were? Filled with gospel promises, telling you every conceivable and possible way to behold and celebrate the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Unpacking the riches of Jesus, chapter after chapter after chapter, and then chapter 12 comes and it's a whole bunch of commandments. And then it starts, that chapter says, Therefore, brethren, because of the mercies, by the mercies of God, these are the ways your life should be shaped and changed because of what Christ did for you. And one of the ways is, he says, don't seek vengeance. Trust God. Don't seek vengeance. Two years ago, Amanda Blackburn um, was brutally shot in the back of the head. She was 13 weeks pregnant. Somebody broke into her home while her husband was at the gym early in the morning. He was a church planner, like me. His name was Davey, and he was in Indiana. His wife was 28 years old, um, and he came home and he found her. And they arrested the suspect, an 18-year-old kid, just a few weeks later. And Davey released this statement after the arrest. Check this out. Now, I want to ask you a question, first of all. He's a Christian. He's a pastor. They arrested the guy that did that to his 28-year-old wife and the baby inside her womb. How would you respond to that? I could tell you right now, I'd be going to Egypt. It'd be a temptation. And by going to Egypt, you can just fill in the blank, whatever that would mean for you. I'm from Arkansas, and we have ways, right? (laughs) This is what he said. Though it does not undo the pain we are feeling, I was extremely relieved to get the news of the arrest of Amanda's killer. My hope is for three things in the weeks to come. Number one, that the court system would have wisdom on how to prosecute this man so that no one else endures the pain Amanda and our family endured because of his actions. Number two, that through all of this, and although there will be great consequences for his actions, he would become truly sorry for what he has done and will begin to experience the life-transforming power of the grace and mercy of Jesus. Number three, that Jesus would give me and our family a heart of forgiveness. And this is the money quote right here. Though everything inside of me wants to hate, be angry, and slip into despair, I choose the route of forgiveness, grace, and hope. If there is one thing I've learned from Amanda in the ten years we were together, it's this. Choosing to let my emotions drive my decisions is a recipe for a hopeless and fruitless life. He's talking about Egypt. Today I am deciding to love, not hate. Today I am deciding to extend forgiveness, not bitterness. Today I am deciding to hope, not despair. By Jesus' power at work within us, the best is still yet to come. Even when I don't see it, I believe it to be true. Even when I don't... He's talking about what Jerry Bridges says. It's a lot easier to obey God on the outside than trust Him on the inside. 
And let me give you just a little transparent moment as your pastor. I went to the beach yesterday, took my whole family. Man, should I say this? Yes, I should. I want to encourage you. So we're walking out on the beach, and there's, there's two probably college-age kids, and I think they were having a really good time, if you know what I mean, okay? And they got this baseball, and they're throwing this thing. They're like 50 yards, half a football field apart. They're throwing this thing, and they're having a really good time, so they're not catching it, you know? And I got, I've got five kids and one on the way, and I hardly ever go to the beach because there's so many people there, and I'm agoraphobic sometimes. So I'm walking out there, and right when I walk past this cat... This, his buddy overthrows, and he can't jump high enough to catch it, and this baseball whizzes by my head and misses one of my kids by about a foot, my, one of my little kids. So, <laughs> I got to tell you guys, I went to Egypt for a minute. I did. I said, hey, hey buddy. I said, how about you and your friend? Why don't y'all move that way? Because my family's here, and, uh, and you know what he said? You know what that joker said to me? <laughs> I'm a pastor. It's about to be throw down right on the beach. He said, yeah, maybe someday. Oh, man. Now, look, God, I'm just being honest with you. I really, I want this to resonate with you, what I'm telling you. It would have felt right for me to say something else, okay? Which is why I did. <laughs> I said, all right, all right. But look, I said, when one of those baseballs hits one of my kids, it's own. It's own. And he turned, and he turned. I'm, guys, I'm sorry. I'm embarrassed. To I'm a human being, and, I, and I'm redeemed in Christ, but I still have fallen emotions that come out of me. And the instant I said it, I was convicted. And I thought, why did I say that? And my wife said, what did you just say to him? I said, you don't worry about it. I'm taking care of business up here. The minute I said it, God's Spirit convicted me. And you know what that guy did? They moved. They moved over, and they played ball down there. And, he, and, and here's, here's the end, but it took him a while. It took him about an hour to do it, because he was mad, I was mad. And you know what? I didn't even enjoy the first hour there with my kids at the beach. Now, let's be honest. Isn't that what that does? That's what trusting and false security does to you. It leaves you empty and bitter and angry. It feels right. Oh, it feels good. It feels good. And, you know, 20 years ago, I would have gone further than that. You know, there would have been less conversation and more action, and it would, have been, it would have been terrible with my kids there and all of that. But you know what I did when we were leaving the beach? There's a happy ending. Just hang on. When we were leaving the beach, the guy got his baseball glove back out, and they went back to throwing it. And I had to go back and get something, and I walked up to him, and I said, man, please forgive me, dude. I said, I'm sorry. He said, for what? I mean, people don't even, the world doesn't even understand this. I said, man, I'm just snapping off at you, and... And being a smart aleck and being all edgy, I said, I shouldn't have said that, man. I, we, we should have moved. I invaded your space. You were here. And he said, don't worry about it, man. So, you know, we fist bumped and on we went. But how easy was it for me, man, to just run to Egypt, to do something that felt right? It seemed logical. It seemed, it's, I seemed justified in doing it. But where did it lead? Bitterness, emptiness. And that's just a small illustration. Guys, I do this every day. And God's Spirit is so faithful to convict me. So there's retaliation. Here's another one, deception. Deception. Relying on Egypt is not God's plan, so guess what? You're going to be deceived. It's a bulging wall. You're going to put all this weight on it. It's going to collapse. I can remember about 10 years ago, me and another uh, friend of mine, a fellow pastor, we went out to eat with a guy who was a recovering alcoholic, okay? And he had, he, his family had suffered. In fact, he and his wife had separated because he was unreliable and he was dangerous. He would do anything to get money to buy alcohol. And the guy was a successful businessman at one point, but he had separated from his family. He had deceived them over and over and over, and they were at the process of rebuilding trust. They were about to move back in together. I was encouraged. I was over the moon excited. Me and this other pastor, and then this guy dropped a bomb on me. 
He said, look, man, there's something I need to tell you. He said, I'm doing great. I've been dry. I've been sober for this many months. And my wife and I are talking and my son's ready to forgive me and I'm about to move in. But I've been unfaithful to her. Man. I said, well, what did she say? And he said, well, what do you mean what did she say? I said, when you told her, that, when you asked for forgiveness, and you told her, he said, oh, no, I'm not doing that. I said, well, what do you mean you're not doing that? He said, I can't tell her that. And I said, well, bro, you've got to be honest, man. You've got to tell her. You sinned, you sinned against God. You sinned against your family again. You're just starting to rebuild this trust. You've got to tell her. He said, I'm not going to do that. He said, are you kidding me? And run the last 18 months of rebuilding this relationship? That will destroy her. That will destroy her, and, and our marriage will be dissolved forever. So what, what was he doing? What was he doing? He was going to Egypt. Why? Because he's building this relationship on a lie. He's building it on a wall that's, that's, that's bulging, and it's going to collapse under its own weight. I said, bro, what are you going to do when this girl that you cheated on your wife with calls your wife? What are you going to do? What are you going to do when you see her out in public? I said, don't do this, man. Repent. He said, I'm not doing that, man. He said, you know, that's a real risk. He said, that's risky. And my friend, the pastor that was with me, I'll never forget it, what he said. He said, bro, that ain't risky. That's Christianity, man. That's Christianity. That's what we do. That's what repentance is. That's the fruit of repentance. Is you going to your wife with humility and saying, look, I really messed up. I own it. I'm sorry. I'll do whatever it takes. I understand. I'll give you space. But that's one way. Not only retaliation, what happened at the beach with me, but um, deception. That's another way we run to Egypt. I got time for one more. Let me throw one more in here, okay? Um, okay, maybe two more, real quick, okay? <laughs> Evacuation. Evacuation. What's that? That's leaving. That's when the marriage is hard. It just does, I'm, not in love, I'm not in love anymore. As if love is something you fall in. If you can fall in love, you can fall out of love. That's the danger of calling love something just emotional instead of seeing it as emotion and action bound together in a covenant, right? But it's evacuation. It's okay, I'm pregnant, and I didn't want to be pregnant. I didn't plan to be pregnant. And I'm going to go to Egypt. I'm going to take care of this my way, the human way, right? Or I'm going to abandon this relationship. I'm going to, I'm going to leave this covenant, you know, that I made. And I'll keep that one short. It's, that, that's giving up. When there's a challenge, when there's opposition, when there's a cost, saying, I'm out. That's running to Egypt. That's trusting in a false security instead of in trusting in God. It says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You've got my Holy Spirit. You've got my promises. You've got me. <laughs> How shall he who not only gave you Christ also along with him freely give you all things, the Bible says. Now here's the biggest one of all, this last one. You ready? It's exertion. Exertion. You say, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. Trusting in your own labor, your own sweat, your own effort, your own work to commend you to God. You say, that's going to Egypt? Like trusting in a good life? Absolutely. Because it's trusting in a lie. What does the gospel say? The gospel says this. You and I are so sinful and, and so flawed. We're so wrong in our spirit and in our heart that God had to send his son to die for us. And the gospel also says that we're so loved and we're so accepted in Jesus that God was glad to do it for us. So it says this, basically. We're more sinful than we could ever imagine, but we're more loved than we can ever dare to hope. That's the way Tim Keller said it, right? So if you're trusting in something that you're doing 
or something that you're going to do to commend yourself to God to say, you know what, this will make God happy with me. No, it won't. It could actually offend God if you're trusting in that for his affection because he did send his son to bleed for you on a cross outside the city um, so that you could be accepted, right? That's called trampling the blood of Christ underfoot. So exertion, exertion is the worst form of going to Egypt because it's trusting in something that you're going to offer God. He already sent the perfect sacrifice for us. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was slain for the sins of the whole world. But instead of that lamb, you're going to offer your own. You're going to do the Cain and Abel thing. Remember that? One offered a slaughtered lamb and he was accepted. And the other offered green beans and a salad. <laughs> and he was rejected, right? And cursed. That's going to Egypt. Well, here's the third and last point, and it'll take a minute, okay? <laughs> or thereabouts. The final point is this. Not only do we all seek false security, okay? And not only do those false securities end up costing us, leaving us empty, angry, bitter, unfulfilled, shallow, resentful. The third thing is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus keeps his covenant. I mean, let me, let me say it this way. Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he calls all these covenants a covenant of death, a covenant with the grave. He says, you're going to be ashamed. You're going to be like the soldier that's left on a hill about to die with a, holding a pole. You're going, to be, you're going to be like the person that's in, a, that's in a bed that's too short with a blanket that won't cover him. Well, consider this. What if there was a man who came and he said, you know what? I'll make an agreement with death and I'll keep the agreement. You deserve it. That's a covenant you deserve. You deserve to make a promise with death and to, and to meet that covenant, but you can't do it. So what if I was to come and make it a covenant with death and keep that agreement on your behalf? What if one came and he was standing alone on top of the hill outside the city, but instead of waving a pole, he was hanging on it? What if one came and rejected the comforts of this bed and rejected this warm security blanket and instead said, you know what, I'm going to crawl inside a human body, subject myself to time, subject myself to, to cruel human torture, and I'm going to die for the sins of my enemy. What would that mean to you? That would mean, listen, that would mean you would never have to trust in anything false for the rest of your life. That would mean that Jesus has paid the ransom for your soul. That would mean that he is ultimately reliable, ultimately trustworthy, and that you'll never have to look for anything else to ever fulfill you or satisfy you or forgive you ever again. That's what Jesus did. And that's why he's better. That's why he keeps his covenant. It actually says in verse 18, check this out. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. When you're reading this story, if you're just reading it like a normal narrative or a novel, you should be shocked and blown away because God is saying all these things. Egypt is going to make you ashamed. Assyria will, 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 will crush you unless you trust me, unless you trust me. Well, Egypt... Egypt didn't keep their promise. Assyria came and encamped right outside the walls of Jerusalem. And you're reading this on the edge of your seat. And do you know what happens? Do you know what God does? The night before the big battle began, the leaders of Israel got together and they came to God and they said, we're fools. We're fools. Egypt betrayed us just like you said they would. Assyria is camped outside of us, ready to raise us to the ground. And we're fools because we trusted in all of those false promises. God, would you please rescue us? Would you please deliver us? We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. We deserve to be burned to the ground and the, and the line of the kings of Judah to be cut off. Do you know what God did? Do you remember this story? This is pretty incredible. You can't make this stuff up. God sent one angel, one angel, into the camp of the Assyrians. 
And the Bible says that that angel slaughtered 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And the next morning, some of the Israelites walked outside and they thought it was a prank. They thought it was a setup. They couldn't believe it. God did with one angel in about five seconds <laughs> what Egypt had promised to do but didn't deliver. You're reading this and you're thinking, why did God do this? How could God do this? How could God forgive people that were, that were that foolish? That were that stupid? How could He do that? Well, the same way He forgives us. Because Jesus accomplished all the things that we deserve, right? He's our substitute. He took our place. And Jesus lived the perfect life. Jesus never once trusted in any false security. Not once. There were temptations. Satan tempted him in the wilderness. Jesus didn't budge. He didn't budge. He never sinned in word and thought or in deed. And that's why we can we could trust him then and we can trust him now. Are you trusting him or are you going to run to Egypt? He's trustworthy.